As we get started today, I want to talk about cautiously repositioning ourselves from pastor to missionary slash network leader. I want you to really think about these terms here now. Pastor, I'm the shepherd, I'm overseeing the flock. Uh, sometimes I'm warned about not ruling over the flock, but I'm there to serve them. But then as I begin to think of myself in a little different way, I'm a missionary who's also a network leader. In other words, I'm a player on the field. I'm a player coach, if you would. And the changes that are really necessary for us to make this shift. But I want to start out with a story. So I want to talk to you a little bit about China. And it's a disaster right now. I mean, the last time that I met with leaders from China, we had to meet in Tokyo because it would be dangerous for them if I went there. There's a picture that is on the screen of a church that I actually preached in, which was built inside the grounds of a factory, which was what gave it a lot of protection for many, many years. But with this new president, uh, they demolished this church building. Tragedy, it's, it's happening over and over. Sometimes 20 buildings a day are being destroyed in China. And so uh, the picture that you're seeing is from Wenzhou, which is called the Jerusalem of China, because before the rapid industrialization, after Nixon and Kissinger went to China, uh, this was really the countryside. And the people who were there were very poor people, uh, mostly farmers, uh, a lot of times illiterate people. They were the ones that embraced Christianity. That's why it's called the Jerusalem of China. And so when I was in Wenzhou, I, I spoke in, uh, to leaders of, I didn't speak in, I spoke in about four churches, but I spoke to leaders of churches, um, 17 churches. Every, every person owned a business, a massive business, big import, export, those kinds of businesses. They had huge company campuses, and then they were able to build a church building right smack in the middle of the thing. And the fact that they're generating money for the economy protected them from the government until most recently, maybe four or five years ago. These guys that I met, none of them had a seminary education. A couple of them had a college education. All of them had started a business. One guy actually started a business by going out in the morning and catching fish with a fishing pole and sell them on the sidewalk when he was a boy. By the time that I knew him, he was the owner of a large multinational electronics firm and the pastor of 4,000 people. And by the way, that church out of the 17 was the smallest. The largest is up in the, the tens of thousands of people. And all of those buildings have come under destruction right now. Very, very tragic thing. But I want you to hear this. There's this metamorphosis from this movement to get started among people who are barely literate, who desperately need what the gospel has to offer them. And it spreads out through China. And it's the thing that we always think of when we think of the Chinese underground church. But now let me tell you my story from Shanghai. About 10 years ago, I was invited into Shanghai to teach the kind of stuff I'm teaching you to a bunch of pastors. And actually, we were an illegal meeting. You're not supposed to gather in groups of more than 25 people. There were 85 of us there. It was kind of a little bit of a scary thing for the people that were hosting it. Just to give you context, the missionaries were born in China, but raised in America, went back to China, Chinese nationals, and served as missionaries there. The night before, they're all excited about a young man named Daniel coming to visit with us and, and the fact that he is overseeing over 3,000 of these underground churches that we all think of when we think of the underground church in China. And he's a young guy. He's in his early 30s. And then they're freaking out because this person named Anna is coming, this woman. 
and she's bringing 11 people. Like, this is a really bad thing. And so I go into the meeting the next day, all excited about meeting this guy, Daniel, and maybe his name is David, I can't recall which, and, um, and a little bit nervous about meeting Anna and these apparently heretics. I don't know what's going on. So here's the deal. The guy with the D name, Daniel, David, whatever, sits in the back row and pretty much criticizes everything that I have to say, which is everything that we believe about what drove the network or the rapid movement of the underground church in China back in the 1940s and 50s. Meanwhile, Anna and all her friends who happen to be investment bankers. Anna is a biogeneticist. She's taught in a university in the United States for nine years. She got a PhD. Her husband's an investment banker. All the people she brought with her are stockbrokers or investment bankers. They're sitting in the front row taking notes like crazy. Every time we have a break, the missionary's wife comes to me and tells me, you got to soften a little bit. Your message is a little too hard for uh, Daniel or David uh, to take. It's just, and, 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 and then Anna guys are all sitting in the front just going nuts, taking, taking notes, asking questions, whatever. I go to lunch with them. She's got a church of about 120 people. They're all very wealthy people. And uh, there's 13 of them that want to go out and plant a church. Now, here, here's what I'm saying. Anna is a missionary network leader. This other guy is a bureaucrat. He, he presents himself as leading a missionary network. He presents himself as a bishop, which is probably where things begin to go unwind on him. Because now he's overlording, overseeing, in many, many, many cases, slowing people down with theology, with rules, with all those kind of things. As we shift our role from that of pastor, shepherd, somebody who's feeding people, maybe even entertaining people, to somebody who's challenging people, to someone who hopefully is a frontline missionary yourself. You need to be thinking a little bit more about Paul and Barnabas and what went on in Antioch, what went on in Ephesus, in those places. And so, so let's just talk for a minute with some questions that I have to ask you if you think of yourself as a potential missionary network leader. First is, will you position yourself as an Anna in the story I just told rather than a David? Second question is, who should you personally befriend? Now, I'm talking about your neighbors who may not know Jesus, but the people in your church who do know Jesus, who you need to get closer to so that you can get them closer to the task at hand. Who should we reach or who should you reach as in your ministry of reconciliation? Because remember, the scripture says, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit, that God's point here is reconciling people to himself. You go back in the book of Genesis, uh, the Adam and Eve story in the garden, you get to Abraham, whatever. It's always about God reconciling people to himself. It's not about building a church. It's not about building a movement. It's not about building us and our ego. It's about reconciling people to God. Who are the people that God has placed in front of you and I that we're supposed to be reconciling to him? And how can we best reach them where they are. I want to talk about this just a little bit more in the next slide or two. But what, what are the best ways of touching these people? Because, you know, one size does not fit all. And then how can we avoid the doctrinal slash institutional or the personal empire traps that we're going to face along the way? I want to show you this map of the expansion of Christianity 
in the first three centuries. And if you notice that in the first century, the gospel spread much faster in what would today be Syria or Turkey, which in those days was uh, Syria and Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is located, right next door to, to Syria. It's that little bright pink strip at the bottom of Turkey on the map. And so the, the, the center of the gospel very quickly moved away from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was there and perhaps institutionalism that was there also. And then, of course, uh, the gospel spread in Turkey because of that's where Paul went on his first missionary journey and, and where much of his missionary work was done was in what we think of as Turkey today. I want you to realize that the drivers to this thing were missionary thinkers. They were apostles or they were at least apostolic leaders. Now, when you look at Apest in Ephesians chapter 4, you may not count yourself as an apostle. But if you're really going to get the job done, you have to become an apostolic leader. In other words, an apostolic thinker. You may not have all the drive that Paul had or, you know, some other person that really is an apostle. But you must begin to think in terms or that are different than the terms that we're taught to think in, in terms of what we do. We're, we're taught that you're a pastor or you're a bishop or you're a theologian or there's some of those goofy people out there that are missionaries. No, we all need to come back to that if we're going to drive a movement, if we're going to change the world around us, we're going to have to become apostolic thinkers. Now, as you look at the map and you look at the colors on the map, that that bright pink is the first century. And then the <clears throat> little uh, softer pink is uh, the second century. And then, of course, the third century, when persecution really heated up and the gospel began to spread quickly again, what I think happened was this. And maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I think happened. The first century was dominated basically by apostolic leaders and thinkers like Barnabas and Paul and those that they immediately discipled. The second century, when things slowed down, saw the rise of theologians in North Africa and elsewhere, and the, the, the rise of the office of the bishop. The only bishop that I can really see as I'm looking through the New Testament is James in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and you know the letter that they wrote thereafter. Um, but these people were, were releasing people. They weren't holding them down. Normally, the role of a bishop throughout history has been to hold people down and to control things. And so you see in the second century, this rise of the controllers, the theologians and the bishops. And in the third century, the persecution had warmed up enough that the gospel once again began to get released. Now, when we start thinking about theology and all that, a lot of times it constrains us. What would you do if you met somebody who, who went to a bunch of people who were worshiping a pagan god and begin to allude to God the Father in the terms that would, they would be thinking about their pagan god, because that's exactly what Paul did on Mars Hill. When he was talking about the unseen being, the unseen God, those people were thinking of Zeus. He was relating to them on kind of their turf, on their terms, in their understanding. I recently came across a news article where believers in different parts of Indonesia had to sue so that they could use the word Allah when they were talking to their friends about Jehovah. So here we are. We got theology. We got theologians. We got people who are saying this is right and this is wrong and whatever. But what I'm thinking that we're going to need to do if we're going to really become um, 
a, a missionary network leader is we're going to have to develop our theology around first God and Jesus, and second around the the mission and what what we're doing. So you you get involved with theology Christology, and then you start to get involved with missiology. What is it going to take for me to reach these people? And out of the experiences that I have there linked to the scripture, I begin to develop a theology. And I guarantee you that your theology will be more forgiving of other people, and it'll be a little bit looser than the kind of stuff that you and I get in the books usually. I want you to consider this thought, and I'd like you to consider this book. It's a little bit of a heavy read, um, not a hard read. It's just a little bit of a slow read. It's called Ephesiology, the study of the Ephesian movement. It comes from the William Carey Library. The author is a guy named Michael T. Cooper. I just discovered him this week, and I'm pretty excited about what I'm reading. He's got a whole bunch of books out there. But he makes this one statement, a missiologically theocentric, okay? It's, it's, it's a missional movement that's centered on God, a missiologically theocentric movement determined to fill God's mission becomes a target for spiritual warfare. And then he says this, there is nothing that Satan would like more than to see the efforts of the spread of the gospel reduced to an institution. You know what? Nobody's getting burned at the stake in America for their faith, but we surely do suffer from institutionalism. And this is something that I think we need to pay attention to and be careful of as we're hoping to move our people into new territory and into new turf. Any church multiplication network or movement must be more about God than it is about people. See, the problem right now in America is we've made church all about the people. We want you to be comfortable. We want your children to have a nice play area. Uh, we, we want to entertain you with music. Sometimes we're entertaining you by being a good Bible teacher. And I cop to that one for sure. And I've used that in ways that were in sometimes manipulative, my ability to teach the Bible. I love to read history. And you know what? I, I established a really strong reputation in Oahu as a history knower. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a historian, but I'm a history knower. And people appreciated that. And they were drawn to our church for that. And I always have to kind of go back and re-examine how, what was I really doing there? You know, we did a pretty good job of planting churches Maybe we could have done a little bit better job. I kind of made it a little bit about me. It's got to be about God. And when you get into God, this word reconciliation comes up. And you know what? It takes evangelism out of the whole realm of I got to sell somebody something to I just got to help somebody move an inch or two closer to God in any time I get a chance to do that. And here's a scripture, and you all know the scripture really well, but I want to read it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But that's not the job of the church. That's not the job of the pastor. I got a call this morning from a, a young guy who's really involved in a church. He's really excited about it. young church, maybe three years old. And he was away for a while. He comes back home after two or three months. He's not the pastor. But he finds some of the people in the home group that he's been leading are sleeping together. And he's going, you know, how, how much grace can I show these people? You know, when do I have to drop the hammer on them? And so we had quite an interesting discussion about accepting people the way that they are and allowing the Holy Spirit to make them into a new creation rather than us trying to jam them into a set of rules or, you know, whatever it is that we do that we try to control people. What we're really saying at that point is I don't trust the Spirit of God to do what he says that he will do. Our job 
is to introduce friends to friends. That's all reconciliation is about. You're my friend. God's my friend. I'd like you to get to know each other. And we can take as long as that takes to do it. And we can go around the block doing it, whatever. We're going to help you become a new creation by introducing you to somebody who will recreate you. It's not my job. It's his job. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, I lived my life around this one. We made this big promise, you know, at the front of our church. Everything that we published said, we promise to love you as is. In other words, whatever you're into, we'll take you. And Jesus is going to change you. I'm not a cop. I don't have to be a cop. Uh, but the old does pass away and the new comes. And I've seen countless lives drastically transformed by the gospel. Then he goes on and says, all this is from God, who's the center of all this, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, it's our job to make friends be friends with other friends, including God. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so quite often, We've been content with building a church rather than reconciling people to God. And, and that's a kind of interesting and sad, sad commentary on the world that we live in. I want to point out that the Great Commission is what science would call a tautology. It's, it's circular reasoning. The Great Commission is circular with the reconciled reconciling others to God. In other words, Jesus says, go, teach, obey. Well, what do you go, teach, and obey? Well, you go, teach, obey the first commandment to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second one, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the third big deal, which is go, teach, obey, love, go, teach, obey, love. In other words, it just goes on and on and on. And, and there, there's a circular motion to this. And so we should be having been reconciled reconciling others to, to the Lord so that they can reconcile others. It's pretty simple. But I want you to look at uh, five characteristics that I can find of the early missionary network leaders. The first one is this, that the early missionaries launched a movement centered on God's intent to reconcile people to himself. It's everything that I've been telling you just now. They were willing to, Paul says, be all things to all people. I want to meet you where you are. And I want to take you from where you are to where you need to be in terms of a relationship with God. And so, again, I see a lot of times our theology and our structures as an interference to this process of reconciliation. You may not, but I do. And I'm teaching this, and so you got to listen to me. Secondly, they were not caught up building churches or building theologies or even trying to build a movement. We talk so much about church planting movements and all that, and we're trying to be one, and I get that. I'm not disparaging that in any way. I'm not disparaging building church buildings or building theologies. We have to have them, but they can so easily get in the way of the thing that we're supposed to do. What I wanna say is this, that building churches, theologies, or movements were forms that followed a well-executed function. You did the job, and then something kind of came out of the hopper. These leaders, thirdly, focused on making disciples who could and would. There's a difference between could and would. We need both of them. Who could and would make disciples, reconciling them to God. 
they did not focus on congregating spectators, which is kind of the opposite of what we've been trained to do in our churches today. They're all about go, not about come. Fourth thing here is that their theology grew from the interaction of their new friends and God, not from hovering over nouns and verbs. You know, I loved theology when I was in a Bible college because, you know, I loved geometry in high school for the same reason. I have a real linear, logical mind, and I, I straight A's in any theology class I, I took because it's so logical. But in, in so many ways, it, it, it begins to, to hem you in. And when I started to get out, and I was a youth pastor, and, and I'm starting to meet people where they're at, and things are happening that I just don't understand, uh, my theology begins to change and stretch. I grew up in a Pentecostal environment. I grew up in a, a situation where healing was something that took place in the front of a church auditorium. Uh, I remember a period of time in my life where I prayed that the Lord would allow me, and he did actually for 14 days, to lead somebody to Jesus and get them to you know, pray the little prayer every day for seven days. And then I prayed it again, give me another week. And I prayed it again. And the Lord said, uh, I didn't make you an evangelist. I made you into something else. But one of those guys that we ended up praying for was a, a high school kid, um, probably senior in high school. And he was feared by the kids in our youth group. He was in the neighborhood. Everybody knew him. Everybody's afraid of him. He's a tough guy. He pulled the engine out of his Chevy, small block Chevy, 350 engine. And he's, he's, he's got it on a hoist over a metal table and he's getting ready to lower it onto the table so he can rebuild the engine and the chain broke. And instinctively, this kid reaches out and, and grabs the, the engine, tries to catch it with his hands. And of course, you know what happened. His hands and forearms were mangled to the point that when we heard about it, the doctors were saying that all they could do is amputate. And so we go into the hospital room, scared to death, really, because this guy's got rough, tough friends, whatever. And we tell him, and it's like, I don't even know whatever possesses to do it. But we told him, you know what, Jesus can heal your hands. And we're here to pray for you that he will. And so we prayed, and the Lord healed his hands. Now, they didn't look pretty, but they fully functioned as he came out of there. That guy came to church two times. We reached out to him over, 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 over. I have no theology for that. But you know what? I'm going to keep on doing it. And I, I, I can tell you other stories, just uh, amazing things that God did. And, and then we built on those amazing things. But I got lots of those sort of bad stories. But I, there are other things. As we were growing as a movement, I noticed that all of the churches that were kind of like ours in the Jesus movement, you know, the hippie days and all that, that were really into eldership, got into authority. And those are the ones that got into all kinds of adultery and money missing and terrible things happening. Uh, the, the churches that saw their leaders as servants, well, that was a whole nother thing. And so we began to look at, 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 at our church and, and we saw the people who wanted to lord it over people and, and, and we saw how they were positioned in the church. And so we took a step back and as, as we begin to rethink this whole thing, theology kind of emerged and we begin to identify this. And I'm not saying that you should do this, but we saw that people who handle the word, that's an elder function in the body. We never had a board of elders. We had pastors who would be called elders, but we never had a board of elders in our church, which oftentimes just sit there to be authorities over everything. And we never had a board of deacons. 
you know, we looked in the New Testament and we saw that the, the deacons controlled the money in the New Testament. But we saw where elders controlled the money in the hippie churches around us. They used the money often to bludgeon other people. And so we went to the point where we identified a janitor in our church or a guy who's helping park cars in our church as a deacon. The word means bond slave. And then we went to the church council, the board, and in their orientation, and we go, hey, we just want you to know that you're honored to be a bond slave. You're honored to be a deacon. You're just like that volunteer guy that goes in and cleans toilets on Sunday morning. This is your role. You serve the body, but just don't lord it over them. And so theology began to emerge that was a little bit loose. It had room for us to move, and it, and it, and it, and it allowed a movement to take place. And then the last thing I want you to notice about these early missionary network leaders is that within a century, as I'm basically thinking about Ephesians here, or I'm thinking about uh, the church in Antioch, within a century, uh, less than a century, in fact, uh, John is writing to them in the book of Revelation, the message that Jesus has for the church, the one I've always most identified with. I looked at us very much like the church at Ephesus. We started out red hot. But within 12, 13 years, we we're already starting to cool off. And we had to be reminded and reminded and reminded that we needed to return to our first love. And so as I end this, I want to come back to pretty much that list of questions that I asked you before, but I've changed it just a little bit. Questions for you as a missionary network leader. First is, will you position yourself as a missionary network leader or as a bishop? or as a theologian, or worse of all, as an entertainer. You know, what do you do? We're talking about carefully repositioning ourselves from the shepherd of the sheep, or maybe the entertainer of the sheep, to that person who is there to goad people a little bit, to lead them, to be a player coach, to be on the ground doing the thing that we're asking them to do. And then again, who should you personally befriend? And who should you and your people or we, as we do it together, reach on our mission of reconciliation. Fourth question is, how can we best reach them as they are? How do we go to them in their vernacular, in their surroundings, where they live, their language even? How do we modify who we are? Like Paul says, I became all things to all men that I might win some. And then how can we avoid the doctrinal, institutional, or personal empire traps that come along the way?